I am so happy to be able to preach the Word of God. Not because I think I'm a special preacher, but there is, I just think this is the most valuable thing that there is to be able to know that there is a truth that's bigger than what we experience, that we see that through the scriptures, right? They are our window into the depths that is our God, who is more dynamic than the English language or any language ever known to man can actually describe. But it is what we have, and it is our call, his word to us, like, okay, so what's going on here? And the reason you say, well, I've read that book, and I don't need to read it again, or like, why do you always go back to the same book every Sunday, not just Luke, because we've gone there often, but actually to the same scripture, why not bring in other texts? It's, it's because there's such depth to scripture that you can honestly, you could probably take many, just, just a single verse from scripture, then then cast a new lens on almost every other scripture. And so to continue to saturate yourself in it and just have a deep understanding, as opposed to in our world, it's, it's to get the sound bite and move on. Get the sound bite and move on. It's like, okay, so we come back to Scripture. And I hope that you have a habit in your own life of like feeding yourself with Scripture more than just what you hear from, from this pulpit or this church or um, because it's so deep. And you will never find yourself oversaturated with the Word of God. I just... I've never seen that happen in practice. And I know from personal experience, it's far deeper than we'll ever have the hours on this life and then hopefully get new revelations when we can see his kingdom fully come. So with that said, I would like uh, to pray because I am not a perfect preacher. And so we'll pray for God's work to be done. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the gospel of Luke. Thank you for Ryan. We're praying for him. And we're praying for this church, this body of believers, every heart that's here to hear your word proclaimed today, that it may foster belief, and belief would equal um, new life, new creations, actually old selves dying and new creations coming, where the whole paradigm is shifted for those who are in Christ. And we're looking forward to see that take place as we um, hear your word today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, so... Um, in September, we are still going to Gospel of Luke, and you might be like, oh, I guess we're just done with Luke. It's like, no, we're just intending to like finish it when we can, and right now we have an opportunity to turn to Luke 22 today. So I'm uh, only six verses from Luke 22, and we can read those together. Uh, but before we do, I actually wanted to read you a hymn, which is called Almost Persuaded, and we sing this sometimes. Uh, Chooch plays it for us. Andy's favorite hymn. <laughs> he says it's actually the most terrifying hymn that is. Um, Philip Bliss. The Bliss is a pretty good last name. He is the author of that hymn from the 1800s, I believe. And so uh, it's actually a very interesting hymn. I'm not going to say it's like, okay, I take this hymn. But it does apply really well to Luke 22, the first verses of that. So almost persuaded goes like this. I'm going to read uh, four of the verses to you. Almost persuaded, quote, now to believe. Almost persuaded, Christ to receive. Seems now some soul to say, go spirit, go thy way. Some more convenient day on thee I'll call. Verse two. Almost persuaded, come, come today. Almost persuaded, turn not away. Jesus invites you here. Angels are lingering near. Prayers rise from heart so dear. Oh, wanderer, come. Verse 3. Oh, be persuaded. Christ never fails. Oh, be persuaded. His blood avails. Can save from every sin. 
cleanse you without and within. Will you not let him in? Open the door. And then verse 4, almost persuaded, harvest is past. Almost persuaded, doom comes at last. Almost cannot avail. Almost is but to fail. Sad, sad, that bitter wail. Almost, but lost. And that's probably the verse that gets you like, ooh. <laughs> um, persuasion is like, that. again, that word's kind of loaded. It's like, I'm not up here today to persuade you. I'm up here to preach the gospel, um, of which I believe to be true. Um, God is the one working in your hearts. Um, if you feel anything as you hear the word of God today, know that it's not wake in his emotional appeal to you. It's the very spirit of God who is knocking and telling you, I'm here. I'm here for you. I desire for you to turn from a life that dooms you to death. Sin leads to death. And I'm here to tell you grace exists, mercy exists, and it's real found in Christ. So in Luke 22, I just have that in mind. We'll come back to it. I won't leave it at that. Um, but you'll, you'll pretty quickly connect the dots, I think. Luke 22, 1 through 6. This is the English Standard Version. It says, Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called the Passover. So Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. We're only, there's only uh, 24 uh, chapters in the book. So you can kind of do the math. We're in chapter 22. of Like, hey, the story better culminate quickly here. And we haven't gotten to the cross. So he's on his way, and it's called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes seeking how to put him, Jesus, to death, for they feared the people. Verse 3, Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the crowd. Uh, I want to you to look at that man. That is an actor um, portraying who? Judas. From what uh, series? The Chosen. Anybody seen The Chosen in here? Got some Chosen fans? Not, not too many. If you haven't seen The Chosen, I, I highly recommend it. It's uh, getting ready to release season four of seven. And so the, you can binge watch. Uh, they, they have t-shirts that say binge Jesus. Um, you can binge watch the first three seasons. They're available for free online. You can cast it to whatever device, uh, TV you have. But that guy didn't come in, I don't think, until maybe season two. And that's Judas. What do you notice about Judas? And you're welcome to throw it out. Holding a plant, right? That's an accurate observation. He looks happy. He's actually one of the most uh, soft, gentle characters that the Chosen has cast, actors that the Chosen has cast. And from the moment they introduced him, I thought, whoa, this is a really interesting choice. And I, I cannot believe, I do not know how Dallas Jenkins, who is the creator and a director of the Chosen, I don't, I'm not in his heart and his head, but I think this is absolutely intentional. Because it's very, who has known what the Gospels have said has not come into the term with Judas. Even someone who hasn't read the Gospels know what it means to be called, you're a Judas. <laughs> you're a Benedict Arnold. You're a Judas. You're a traitor. Um, and so the, that they're taking what is a really pivotal character, and they're all pivotal characters, and they cast him 
as such a gentle like man to me is really interesting. Like, well, what does that have to do with us today as we look at his life? Um, well, we'll get there. I do want to turn to the Old Testament. I'll have the scriptures up here so you don't have to. But Judas is not just mentioned in the Gospels. In Psalm 41, a psalm of David, David utters these words, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. And they said, oh, David was looking upon Jesus and speaking. It's like, no, that's not clear. Like The context of David's psalm there is probably in his own experience and suffering. And yet, Jesus points directly to Psalm 41 um, when it's like, yeah, this is what's happening to me. So David acts as what they call a type, a type of uh, Savior. Although David was not the Savior, but he got to act as a type and therefore actually prophesy by his own experience of what Jesus then points to. Like, yeah, that what was happening to him is actually on the bigger stage of what's happening to me. And so Jesus said that, that very scripture when he was referring to the one who would betray him. And you notice anytime Judas is listed, it always says, list Judas last, and it says the one who would betray him. And it really is where a lot of his identity is found. Also, though, one other Old Testament is uh, Zechariah. Um, chapter 11, it's where it says, Then I said to them, If it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out as my wages 30 pieces of silver. Then the Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. And so that actually, at this point of the Gospel of Luke, doesn't find its full like, okay, what's going on? But then I'm, I feel comfortable skipping ahead in the story where after Judas betrays Jesus, um, what happens? He takes the money they paid him, throws it back to him, um, and then he, uh, they are like, well, this is blood money. We've we got to follow the law. So they've used it to buy the potter's field, right? And you're like, hmm, interesting part of the story. Yes, interesting. Why this little caveat here that God includes? Not sure. Also, it's also, if you come across this, I don't want you to be surprised. But then in Matthew's gospel, he actually attributes that same phrase to Jeremiah, not Zechariah, which is like, oh, someone be like, oh, so scripture's wrong. Like, careful there, right? You know, like, there may be more of the story not recorded, but we do know Zechariah's words were recorded. So that's just a little bit of the Old Testament background. But then I'd like to draw your attention to the other gospel mentions of of Judas, uh, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, of course, we can't let this go, he who was about to betray him said, um, why was this ointment? So when uh, the ointment was put on Jesus' feet and he was anointed with oil, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this because he was such a thoughtful, caring man, and he was always aware of his resources. No, he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself what was put into it. And then in the next chapter of John, um, we see Jesus with his disciples on, um, at, you know, at the Passover there in Jerusalem, celebrating the meal. Jesus says, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, 
was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him, And so Simon Peter motioned, asked Jesus who he's speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against him, said, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, It is he whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he'd taken the morsel, Satan entered into him, Judas. And Jesus said to him, What you're going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. So the old version of myself probably would have been like, okay, wait, you ask him who's going to betray you. He tells you, and you're like, I, that doesn't make any sense to me. <laughs> I can't how quickly the disciples, they seemed dense. But also, we don't know, actually, from that account that it wasn't just really small conversations there between Peter, uh, John, as a disciple, to lean back against him. And so we don't know the full setting context. I usually have tried to slow myself when I think, that person's so dense in Scripture. Um, and you're like, well, you're the dense one, Wakefield. So just real quickly, and this is a question I think will probably influence my Bible preaching, teaching for a, a while to come, it's paying attention to where there's pressure. In these stories, where's the pressure on the characters? But also then applying that to you as well and myself. Where's the pressure coming from? And I kind of asked that in Sunday school this morning. So on the Pharisees, and we see this in verse one, where's the pressure on the Pharisees? Like, what are they responding to? They know they want Jesus out. Why don't they just kill him? Open air street. Like, why, why is this a, such a problem for them? Where is the pressure? And it tells us, actually, in 22, um, they feared the people. Like, the pressure was the fact that they had the power in their little region here. The Romans had let them really act as they wanted to act. The Romans had more power than the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. But what are the Romans also afraid of? They're afraid of the people as well, revolt. So they, they let the Jews have their way just to make sure the people are happy. If the people are happy and satisfied, they won't revolt and we can stay in power. We don't have to. We have limited resources for such a big empire. The people need to stay happy. So the Romans are facing that. And that's why we see later in Pontius Pilate acting as he did. But then we see the Pharisees have their own particular pressure of like, if the people don't cooperate, if they get upset, then we will be snuffed out by the Romans, and we'll lose our power as well. So they have pressure to keep the people happy, which is also kind of interesting in history of why, like, how can anyone defeat such powerful empires and powerful states? And it's like history always, like, the people have power. Power is always shifting. So just always keep that in mind as you see, like, current events and world events. So we have the Pharisees with the pressure coming from the people. We have Jesus under pressure, like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Jesus under pressure? Yeah, where's Jesus? Why does he act the way he does? It doesn't have to be a negative pressure. He has reasons why he acts and moves the way he does. Because the most real thing to Jesus is the glory of his Father, that he's been shared with Jesus. This is the pressure Jesus feels, is to glory in his Father and to do as the Father wills. 
which we know now was to lay down his life as a sacrifice for sin, ultimately and personally for each of us. So Jesus is under a pressure. And you can see that it's not like he's free from temptation. Satan knows that pressure as well to, to bring a kingdom that's greater than the one. He's like, does it have to be your father's kingdom? Can it be like your kingdom? Isn't there something we can settle for here? Just as Satan tempted in the garden to Adam and Eve. He took some truth, but mixed in a subtle lie. And therefore, Jesus was under not just the pressure of his call from his father, but it was also under attack, that kind of pressure. Like you have pressures of, yeah, but there's other things going on too, other temptations. So there's pressure on Jesus. But thankfully, he fulfilled the pressure from the father, not pressure from Satan to settle for anything less. And we see Satan already, like he acted in the temptation in the desert. And, and actually it said in that scripture, and when Jesus was tempted by Satan 40 days at the beginning of his ministry, Satan went after him like, all right, let's try to snuff this out before it gets out of hand. And Jesus uh, relented, like, or Satan relented because Jesus was able to stand firm away from the temptation of Satan. And so then it said, Satan left him until an opportunity presented itself. Or I think I paraphrase that, but that's what the scripture says in so many words. And so where did Satan come back into the picture? Here we go. Enter Judas. And what pressure was Judas under? That's, that's a little harder to understand. And plenty of people, and I'm, I'm one of them, can come up with their own like, ah, here's probably what Judas was thinking. Don't miss this. Judas was a disciple. He was one of the twelve. Judas had intimate personal experiences I mean, intimate, just like very personal with Jesus. Judas was sent on the two by two missions to go perform miracles in the name of Jesus. Judas was, he had every opportunity to actually observe the power of God in human form. And yet, we are talking to him about him today as a betrayer. So, what pressure? was Judas under that would have caused him to act like he did? There is a, a pat answer, I think, that is probably suitable. It's like, well, that is what God ordained him to do. You know, like it said, God, there had to be a betrayer. Jesus had to be betrayed to get, because there was no righteous way for Jesus to be convicted and killed as a criminal. There had to be a betrayer. Um, and so then we start to, I think, just dismiss Judas, like, yeah, just a cog in the, in the clock that is God's works. Um, but as listening to other pastors I respect, including Alistair on this, he's like, no, do not, do not go there. Do not miss what God is showing us about how Satan can work to distract from the glory of God. And how Judas is a good example of that. Like, oh yeah, just let him off from like, it wasn't like his will playing out. It was only God's will. Like, no, we see some some opportunity here that Judas was under a pressure that he failed to see the actual glory of the Jesus, of his rabbi, his teacher. He, he took Jesus as a teacher, but not as a savior. Um, so we'll get into that just a little bit more, but consider that as applied to you. You know, you're like, all right, yeah. Why, I mean, I want to honor God. I want to love my family. I want... I want this. I want to do that. I need this. Pay attention. Where's the pressure? 
coming from for you right now. Um, even to sit in that seat, there's pressure applied. And again, don't just think as pressure is negative. Like pressure is why are you doing what you're doing? Why are you in that seat? Why are you listening to these words of the gospel right now? Where's the pressure coming from? Because there's, there's two major forces at play. God's will and our will. And so I hope that that pressure is because you believe that there is a God who doesn't ordain just life on this earth, but in, ordains life forever. Like eternal in presence, purpose, and power. And therefore you, I hope, feel the pressure of like, I am dying. I will be dead eventually, if not soon. And I, I want to have an answer to that. And that's the kind of pressure I think God is, has put it into my own heart. But also, this is the pressure of to say, as we talked about the Fillmore Ballpark, God's glory is the only ultimate reality. You say, well, God's glory reflects in me having life. It's like, you having life is an accessory to his glory. Like, it is the most real thing. His glory being the most real pressure that we actually know because it actually is everything. That it's our belief we look into Genesis and even the creation account is an outpouring of the his own glory, his own nature, his own character. And then it plays out in himself and his son and the spirit. And it plays out in the gospel. It plays out in the Israelites and Abraham's family and in the gospels and, and what Christ has done. And then in the church and even now in the church. But all of that finding its root in the glory of God. And so ultimately, I hope we could say, where is their pressure? The pressure is to get connected to the only real thing we know exists forever, and that's the glory of God. And everything else coming, like out, emanating out from that core of God's glory, including um, Christ and, and his nature and his salvation from sin for us. Even my life itself from God's glory. But you know that's not where we start. That's not our status quo. Just with Adam and Eve getting to be in the garden. and All right, we have the glory of the garden. All needs provided for. We have no shame. Everything is whole and right. And yet the pressure enters and comes in and it comes in in the form of these subtle lies. Um, and those subtle lies are still just chirping at me every day. And you know too, they're chirping at you. Those subtle lies like, ah, not good enough. Ah, you know, you can't. You can't be perfect. Subtle eyes of like, you should be ashamed. You should be so ashamed that you are failing so often and so frequently. And you're not the, you're not the dad you need to be. You're not the worker you need to be. You're not, you're not the teacher you need to be. You're not what you need to be. And isn't there something more for you? Why are you not satisfied? And most of the people in here could honestly look at their lives and like, well, yeah, I guess it's not as bad as some. Like, yeah, I'm not perfect. I'm kind of sick or I have this ailment or I failed this way, but at least I'm not bad at some. And it's like the middle eye is coming into you like, see, but you're not happy because you need more. It's something more. And I think it's the same voice in the garden that's still chirping at us today and is chirping at Judas here. And it's gotten into Judas's heart, entered into Judas. Um, so not to leave completely that last question, where is the pressure in you? You probably keep the radio on long and loud enough that you never have to consider where's the pressure. Take a moment of quiet, even if it's now, in response to the gospel, um, even if it's after when you're home or even in bed. You say, the one moment of peace I get is when I lay my head down on the pillow, but I'm so exhausted that I, I can't think of anything. So maybe take a moment of your prime time and just sit. 
Focus on your breath. Where's the pressure right now? Just like, I'll often, you know, you get Eastern, like, Buddhism saying, like, meditation. So it's the key, it's the key, it's the key. It's like, I'm not against meditation, but only that it points us to Christ. Um, and so taking a, t- a moment, like, where is the pressure? And knowing the lies from the truth, which gets us to see the liar, Satan, the adversary, his key role in this story. Uh, a definition I found um, that I like, Satan, you know, we, we use that term, and I think we just see pointed devil horns, pitchfork. Satan, the adversary, a created but superhuman, personal, evil, world power, represented in Scripture as the adversary both of God and men. And so here he is playing a cool, playing a role in verse 3. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot. And there in John 13, when Satan, or when Judas is sitting at the table of Jesus, Jesus gives him the mortal morsel of bread. You're the one who's going to betray me. Satan, again, enters into Judas. So, yes, I I think uh, Judas has a role to play. I think he did not have to be the one to betray Jesus. This this is just an act to remember. We have no idea what Judas really looked like. That sweet, sweet soul. And, And you're really tempted. I'm tempted to be like, oh no, don't do it, buddy. You look like you got a bright future ahead of you. But there's a lot of reasons for someone to be good, but actually have no desire to die to their own selves and actually say, Christ, it's your life in my life now. And a lot of those reasons Satan hits on. You can be good enough. You can be sweet. You can be smart with your resources. You can be prudent. You can make good decisions, good choices. You can treat others well. And in that, you start to hear Satan's like, Shouldn't that be enough for God? Aren't, aren't you enough for him? Is he really going to judge you? But you're so good. I mean, look at the way you hold plants. It's so sweet. You cared for that plant so well. You are a good manager of resources. You cared about the poor, right? Even though the other gospel, the gospel writer said, it wasn't about the poor because his heart was hard. And so... We see Satan doing a work in Judas similar to, I think, the way he's trying to attack me and you today as well. Um, to say, to take subtleties. I'm like, yeah, you're good enough. You're one of the disciples. If that doesn't save you, what will? To be able to take the label of disciple? For you to be able to take the label of a churchgoer? Man, if that doesn't save you, what will? And what we find is if a disciple ends up betraying Christ and spilling his bowels headlong into a field, which I'm sorry for the graphic nature, but those aren't my words. What does that mean for us? And what powers actually work at us if we think, well, surely I've, I've got enough going for me that God would not judge me when we see this man betray Jesus, right? So you know how the story, uh, the story goes. Get my notes back up over here. Um, yeah, so Judas in Matthew 27, 3 through 5. When, then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, it went according to plan, right? He was able to find that opportunity that didn't get the people all riled up, kept the Pharisees in control, pleased the Romans, 
And what we see is that the Pharisees and the Romans probably were very happy after it all settled. They're like, okay, this man had been making waves for a long time, Jesus, and we got him out of the picture without a revolt. Like, good job, everybody. That was not going to be easy. And so when Judas, though, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind. Good. So Judas, you sweet, sweet Judas. Like, yeah, sweet guy, you didn't mean to do that. That was a silly act, right? You, he loved you so much. And in my head, I'm thinking like, Judas, Judas may have thought he was doing Jesus a favor. Like, if I don't end this, and maybe he thought he was doing the nation of Israel a favor. It's like, we don't have enough to defeat the Romans. So I better end this before it puts us at even more dire odds as the Jewish nation. So who knows? I do not know those things and nobody does. But Judas was thinking something. So I'll, I'll keep it on that. Um, when he said he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders and saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. Not our problem. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and he hanged himself. So, what do we have here in Judas? I'd like you to consider what Paul says to the Corinthians in his second letter recorded to them. As it is, I rejoice, Paul says, not because you were grieved. Judas was grieved, right? You see that. And it makes your heart be like, see, he realized it was a stupid idea. You should have never turned Jesus in. He only wanted good. He only, he said, love your enemies, and you cast him over to be killed. So Judas was grieved. But Paul says, I rejoice not because you were grieved to the Corinthians. He's not talking about Judas in particular. But because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief, produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. I can't help but read that scripture scene like, Judas is a great illustration. <laughs> like, oh, I've screwed up. I'm such a screw up. And now what's my answer? Uh, I try to make it right. 30 pieces of silver. Here you go. Don't want it anyway. Oh, uh, now what? I give the silver back. Why do I not feel better? This, oh, I've made a huge mistake. I am so guilty. There's no other answer but to die. I've got to end this pain. Like a lot of people today in our culture are trying to say, don't feel guilty. Like, don't feel bad. It's not your fault. Like, and any other person could have made the same mistake or choice in your circumstance. That's true. But I think it's really important to feel guilty. Because it's true. Like, you are guilty. I am guilty. But not to say, I'm not guilty. Then I can feel good about my own ability to feel better. But no, feel the full weight of your guilt, your inability to be good. Um, not just by the things you do, but the very thoughts in your head. I know I've said it a lot, but what if we took a transcript of your thoughts from the week? You would be condemned, and you know it. It's crazy how many bad thoughts you're just trying to, like, go, stop distracting me. I mean, sinful thoughts, some worse than others, right? Some more disrespectful and dishonorably than others. You're guilty. It's, it's, it's okay not because it's not true. It is true. It's okay because there's an answer to guilt. And you can see an example in Judas. And as much as you're like, man, I really want that guy. Like, he looks just like a good guy. And he's so sweet in his demeanor in the show. 
And I think it's important because that's really tempting for us as humans to be like, that's, that's the kind of people, like that's good enough for us. Be of good demeanor. Be of, of good intention. Try your best. And that should be enough for heaven. Heaven is perfect and complete righteousness, not a best efforts type of deal. And I, I don't think we want it anything less because we have best efforts living right here in Andrew County. This is pretty good. This is pretty good best efforts living. But we know the darkness that plagues us, our neighbors, and even our own hearts and minds. We don't want anything less than perfection. So we can't settle for like, he's nice looking. He's got a sweet spirit to him. And at least he was remorseful for his actions. We can't say that's good enough because that is going to water down the holy, righteous standard of God that we want to step into because we want perfection. We want the fullness of the garden, not another version. We do not want heaven to be like this earth. You know, I've never said anyone who said like, yeah, heaven, like this is good enough. Like they know it's not good enough. So we do not want to water down God's righteous standard by saying, just look nice. Have a neatly trimmed beard. That's all it takes. Just regret your actions. Regret your actions and then that's good enough. Paul says, no, it, your grief is good if it leads to repentance. And so what is repentance then? Well, we've done teachings on repentance. It's what John the Baptist even started the Luke's gospel with. They're like, I've come, repent, the kingdom of God is near and it's shown in Christ. Christ is just a man until you've repented and say, I need something more than just a man. And that's when he becomes God. He becomes Messiah, Savior for you and I. And that's exciting because now we say, oh, I don't have to do good anymore. I don't have to be good. He is good for me, is what he's promised. Um, Paul continues on, I'm glad I sent you the things that caused grief, he says, not because it hurt you, but because the pain caused you to repent and change your ways. It was the kind of sorrow God wants his people to have. So you were not harmed by us in any way. For the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads us away from sin and results in salvation. There's no regret for that kind of sorrow. But worldly sorrow, which lacks repentance, results in spiritual death. So Judas were kind of excited in the movie playing out like, oh, I regret it. Have your silver back running away. But he hasn't run where? He hasn't run to Jesus. He has remorse, but he doesn't have repentance. At this point, the God of the universe has shown in man, as formed and manifested in man, he's still alive. <laughs> Judas could have ran there and said, put me on the cross beside him. Like He's worth it. He's God. But instead it was like, I just betrayed a rabbi. He was one of the best rabbis we've ever had. And now he's going to die too. And so I have no hope and I will die. And he does die. As opposed to, no, God is still there. And he's still 100% there, accessible for Judas, even after he became the betrayer. And I believe God could have worked in plan. I don't see that it happened. I believe God could have worked into his plan that even the betrayer came to salvation. <laughs> I don't see that, and maybe that's not, but I, I, it, the reality is we see Judas's death. As it said, not just hang, but for some reason the scripture says his bowels were out there. It's like, it's gruesome. His remorse, his guilt, didn't lead him to repentance of where Jesus was. Take the contrast. Who also um, betrayed Jesus during this 
whole story and saga that we'll see. Peter, exactly. What's the contrast of Peter? Peter denied him not just once and betrayed He denied three times. Like, no, 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 do not condemn me with that man. I don't know him. And yet, and then and Jesus died while Peter was in that condemnation. And Peter had godly, he had sorrow. We see that. He was so distraught. And, and I think that that distraught nature lasted until we see Peter later restored when Jesus asked him three times, like, Peter, um, oh, I forget the words. Peter, uh, Jesus restored Peter. And Peter then goes on to be the rock on which Christ builds his church. And we have no, very little doubt that Peter's not experiencing the full wholeness of God right now. Not because he like, yes, Peter screwed up. Peter screwed up so often. And yet he found forgiveness and redemption in Christ. You screwed up this week. You screwed up in your life. Big time. I have too. You think, well, wait, you don't understand because my scripts are worse than you. They're not. Yes, by the world standards, if we got lists, they compare and contrast our screw-ups. We could all do it together. And they say, oh yeah, those are different. God's righteousness, remember, is way over there. And all our screw-ups are over here. When you take that scale, there's no distinguishable difference between your screw-ups and mine. And Christ is over there. And he's perfect. And he says, you can have my perfection. Judas... For whatever reason, I, I don't know why God worked exactly the way he did in Judas. But you can see an example of remorse for your actions. Guilt. It's true you're guilty. I'm guilty. But without godly repentance. Change. Say, I can't do it anymore. My life is all for nothing. I, I, I got to lay down my own life. I have to die so that Christ may live in me. And then a whole new creation comes. And all of the things that you get to do from there, like that are created already in advance for you to step into goodness, of works that are of love and joy and, uh, and and encourage others because of like, if that guy's life is like that, that means my life could be, yes, under the power of Christ. That's exciting. So don't think about all the work that there is to do because the work's been done for you, but then get ready. Buckle up because the best is yet to come. And that is what we can learn from Judas and why I think it's well recorded. I do want to say, be careful of Satan. Right? And I, I missed this earlier in my notes. Um, but Luke, uh, and Luke records Jesus saying about unclean spirits and not spirits that, that are of the adversary. An unclean spirit had gone out of person. It passes through waterless places seeking rest. And find none, it says, I'll return from the house from which I came, from the person from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house cleaned up by human standards. Everything looks nice now. Okay, I, I stopped drinking so much. All right, I... I Stop viewing pornography as, you know, as often. Oh, okay, I, I cleaned up a little bit. But Jesus says, then it goes. That evil spirit brings seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last day of that person is worse than the first. Contrast that with Paul's words to Philippian, in the Philippian letter, chapter 4. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, there's anything worth praise, think about that. Don't leave houses empty. Think about the most wonderful, beautiful things that there are. And we see that in Christ. Christ, Christ. You have to fill your vessels with Christ. Because if you're just, I just cleaned it up myself, but it's not transformation in Christ. You may be good for a little while, but it's not going to last long enough. It may last the rest of your earthly life, but it's not long enough because it's not eternal work. It's not eternal good. 
So you have to fight Satan, not on your own battle. He's too strong. You have to fight him with the power of Christ by believing on Christ. And if you feel any leading on your heart right now, that's him knocking on the door saying, hey, I've done the work for you. Just believe on me. The rest will take care of itself. I promise you that. And it's good. So in that, we're going to uh, pray. We're going to sing, uh, give us clean hands. Give us pure hearts. Because he's the one who gives us.